0: Well, good morning again, church family. We are just so thankful that you're here this morning as we continue uh, in our service. We come to the time uh, of the sermon, and we are been following through uh, the book of Matthew uh, so far, uh, kind of the uh, last couple of weeks, and so we are in Matthew 10 still. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn there to Matthew 10. Where we're going to pick up uh, where we were last week. So, I'll just remind you uh, maybe you weren't here last week, but we talked about how uh, we see Jesus in uh, Matthew being motivated by compassion. And so we see him preaching and teaching and healing. And when he looks out on the crowd, uh, what motivates him is compassion, uh, for he sees them as they are. Uh, They are like sheep without a shepherd, they are beaten down, harassed by the world, and he is moved. Uh, to minister to them. And then he sends his disciples out motivated by that same compassion. Uh, he, he encourages them to go out as they carry on uh, his mission motivated by that same compassion. And as we noted last week, Uh, From verse 5 through 42 of chapter 10, Jesus is giving instructions to the 12 before he sends them out. So verse 5 begins with Jesus began instructing his disciples, and verse 42 ends. And the next verse says when Jesus completed instructing his disciples. And so this is Jesus uh, teaching his disciples, instructing them before he sends them out. And so what I wrote here is as sent out disciple makers ourselves, we would do well to look at the instructions Jesus gave these first century disciples, right? Because we've seen we are also disciples who are sent out, that we are both supposed to be motivated by compassion. And so it should be very important to us in the way that Jesus instructs his disciples uh, in the first century and sends them out. And while their particular mission is localized, the principles found within these instructions are repeated, uh, first to any who would follow Jesus, and then again to the disciples themselves later in their time with Jesus. Uh, MacArthur calls this passage from verse 24 to 42, the summation of all the Lord's teaching on the subject of discipleship. He goes on to say it like this. Uh, here he teaches, this is teaching, which he repeats, in many other places and in many other times, little pieces and bits of his teaching are here and there all over the gospel record. Sometimes with a little different nuance or meaning and application, but this teaching, is the heart and soul of his instruction on discipleship. He says that Jesus said everything he wanted to say about discipleship in this passage, and I think that is an interesting uh, thing to think about as we approach them, that Jesus is teaching about following him. And so uh, with that kind of as our understanding here, uh, what is uh, shocking about it is that what we find here uh, wildly contradicts Uh, Kind of the kumbaya, feel-good Jesus of modern theology, right? The Jesus that kind of brings everybody together and we all hold hands, right? Or the prosperity-bringing, blessing Jesus of the Word of Faith, the prosperity movement, right? This kind of Jesus. What we find in this passage is Jesus is divisive, confrontational, demanding, and it looks so much different than the world's view of Jesus, Now, there are two potential pitfalls up front when we come to a a text like this that Jesus seems offensive or divisive or demanding. Here's the potential pitfalls as I see them. One, we simply and quickly categorize his words as hyperbole and therefore lessen their impact, right? We say Jesus was exaggerating, right? And surely Jesus used exaggeration to teach. Uh, I mean, it's not hard to think about Uh, Him saying, pluck your own eyeball out or cut your own hand off to realize that he is exaggerating. Or the idea of, of wooden cedar house beams coming out of our eye to understand that Jesus does employ hyperbole regularly in his teaching. But just because something is hard to understand or difficult to harmonize does not give us license to assume it is exaggeratory in nature. Amen? Just because we come to a text and it's hard or we come to a text and it's hard to to reconcile with what we already think, doesn't mean we get to say that it is hyperbole or exaggeration. We have to deal honestly with each portion of text we come to. And so that is one of the dangers. Two, the second pitfall is we acknowledge that they are difficult passages and therefore we ignore them, either outright or subtly. We skim over them quickly rather than allowing us to them to confront us and our tradition and ideas, right? We go, well, that's a hard part, right? That's some of the words in red that are difficult, so I'm just going to kind of skim past those and get to the ones that are a little easier. Uh, That is not what we should do when we encounter things that are difficult, right? As we study scripture, we will come to things that challenge us. The danger for church-going men and women is compounded then that we've heard these words so often that we have become desensitized to the weight of them. And for those of you who may not spend much in time in church, you may have never heard that Jesus talked like this, right? That he was divisive or offensive or demanding, but my prayer is that we would deal honestly with what we find, that the Spirit of God would illuminate what he inspired, and that we would not only understand it, but desire it to be true in our own lives. Amen? So this morning, for Tom's sake, we're going to deal primarily with verses 34 through 39. Uh, of this section and we're going to look at it under two divisions. Uh, The correction Jesus makes to his disciples as well as the clarifying statements he makes and then the caution and counsel he gives those that would follow him as disciples and so today's sermon is taken from the text when Jesus says for my name's sake so for his sake Matthew 10 34 through 39. If you have your Bibles and you're taking notes, the first uh, division is correcting and clarifying. So Jesus is going to spend some time uh, correcting the disciples' thinking and then clarifying his mission. And So we find that in the first couple of verses, verses 34 through 36, if you have your your Bibles. If not, it'll be on the screen. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come... To set a man against his father a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household so this isn't really surprising if you know the context of what jesus has already said right and so just for kind of context sake i want you to understand that after jesus kind of gives him some general instructions For their, their mission trip, their localized mission trip, uh, he tells them, listen, you may not always be received well, right? As you go out and you minister and proclaim and teach and heal, not every town, not every house is going to receive you well. As a matter of fact, some are not going to receive you. Indeed, he says, listen, you're going to be delivered up by men to the courts and they're going to, you're going to encounter interrogations and possibly beatings. Like, isn't this a great pre-mission trip, like rally? Jesus says, I'm sending you out. And by the way, People are going to hate you, and they're going to turn you over, and they're going to beat you, and they're going to, right, right? But go team, right? Jesus never lied to his disciples about what to expect, right? He said, listen, you're going to go out in my name, and they are going to hate you. But it's not just that they're going to hate you. He says worse, it's not going to be strangers or Gentiles that are going to deliver you up. It's going to be those closest to you. Matthew ten twenty one, Brother will deliver brother. Over to death, father, his child, children will rise up against his parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So when Jesus gets around to saying, I came to bring a sword, uh, it's no longer shocking because he's already said that this is going to be a divisive time. But what may be shocking to the disciples is that here Jesus acknowledges not that this delivering up and betrayal among families will mean that things are not going according to plan. But that they are going exactly as he planned for them to go. So we would think maybe Jesus is saying, Listen, I hate it for you, but this is going to be rough and it's not exactly what I want for you. But Jesus says, I came to bring a sword. You're going out and, and you want to experience peace, but I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. Do not think that it is strange that brother will be against brother, that father will be against son and son will be against parents. I did not come to bring peace to the earth. Do not think that it is strange. And the word think here can be translated as suppose, as in do not assume that you know why I came. That's powerful, isn't it? Jesus gathers disciples up. They've been following him for some time. He's going to send them out and he's teaching them. He says, hey, by the way, don't assume you know why I have come. So the popular idea of the day is when the Jewish Messiah would come, he would bring national peace, right? It would be he would bring peace to the nation of Israel and to the surrounding nations, and like it was going to be uh, this time of blessing and prosperity. And so when he says, "Do not assume, do not suppose," he's saying, "Don't don't think like everyone else does that when Messiah comes, it's going to be immediate peace and immediate prosperity and immediate blessing." Don't suppose that because I didn't come for that. I actually came to bring a sword. Jesus wanted them to understand that when they went out to carry out his mission in his name, they should not expect peace and they should not be surprised at division. Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And the word sword here representing the more literal idea, as is stated in Luke, when Luke records, do not think that I have come to give peace. No, I tell you, but rather division. The sword represents division. Now, feels like we're missing something, doesn't it? I mean, as Christians, we know that Jesus is the the prince of peace, Isaiah 9, right? We celebrated that over Christmas. He's the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. We know that when he was born, the angels, the heavenly host declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased Fast forward 33 years in the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, Jesus is riding, and the crowd is worshiping him and he accepts it. And this is what they say. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And in that same uh, passage, he's riding in on Jerusalem and he weeps over their lack of peace that he was bringing to them that they would not accept. A little later, he tells his disciples, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. We are repeatedly told in the New Testament epistles that in Romans 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace, uh, for he has made us both one and has broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, that he might reconcile us both, so making peace. And he came and preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near, Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And yet here, when Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples, he says, do not assume that I have come to make peace, that I have come to bring peace, but rather a sword. Essentially, he says, let me correct your thinking. You think I have come to pour out peace on the world, but I have actually come to pour out division. What do we do with this? Like, how do we reconcile this with everything else we just read? That he is the prince of peace and the bringer of peace and we have peace. And Jesus saying, I didn't come to bring peace. Before we attempt to do so, we have to accept that both these statements about peace and statements about division are true, whether we can fully reconcile them or not my ability to reconcile the word of God does not depend on whether it's true or not. It's true despite my ability to reconcile it, right? So when we come to difficult passages, the other thing we cannot do is try to dismiss them or lower them so that our little brains can figure out the fullness of God's plan. Because listen, if God is someone that I can fully figure out, he's not God. Somebody say amen. There needs to be things that stretch me and challenge me to reconcile intention because God is higher than me and his thoughts are not my thoughts and his ways are not my ways, right? And so this is one of those things that, listen, we may never fully reconcile scripture. There are, I I know there are things we can never fully reconcile, but that does not mean that they are not true. But I think when we study and we pray, there are some times that we can draw some distinctions that will help us better understand. And I think this is one of those times. Like, so let's make some distinctions. First, we know From scripture that jesus came to do the will of the father right and that by his obedience to the father and that will that led him to a cross where he gave his sinless life so those who were separated from the father by sin could be reconciled and therefore might experience peace through him and in him that's biblical amen We know that in reconciling us to the Father, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, making peace a possibility between all men who come to the cross, right? There there is at the, the foot of the cross, the ground is level, right, is the way the saying goes. There is peace between men at the cross because we all come to the cross the same way, whether Jew or Gentile. So we could rightly say that in his coming, his purpose was to bring peace to those who believe. Like that would be biblical to say. Second, we know that Jesus' coming did not produce peace in the world at large. His own people rejected him. They condemned him. They crucified him. Right? Rome put him on a cross at behest of the Jews, and he uh, was put to death. And then we know violently put to death. And then we know that Jerusalem itself will be overthrown and the temple destroyed in AD 70. We know that the disciples were opposed and persecuted and beaten and martyred So we could rightly say that the result of his coming was that he brought division to the world. His purpose was to bring peace, and the result of his coming was that he brought division. So what do we say? Did Jesus not accomplish his purpose? I don't think so. Those of us who come to Jesus are recipients of his peace and now have peace with God. He brought peace. We also know there's coming a day when all the world will know peace, right? When Jesus returns, he's going to take everyone who is in sin and willful rebellion, he's going to send them to their place, and he's going to take those who trusted in him and believed in him and put their faith in him, and he's going to gather them and put them in their place, and there will be no more animosity. There will be peace. For the believer, they will dwell eternally with the Prince of Peace. And so we know that there will be peace fully and finally. Jesus did come to bring peace, and one day it will be fully realized. But before then, there will be division. One commentator gave this simple yet like colorful illustration of this when I was reading. He says, uh, have you ever, think about organizing that closet or that garage you've been getting around to for a few years, Right? Are you finally going to get in that closet? What's the first thing that happens? You pull everything out, and it looks like an explosion, right? As spouses, if you've ever come home and, and witnessed the middle of this, it does not look like peace has coming into that room, does it? Some of y'all quit nudging the other ones. You come in, you say, what is this mess? I'm cleaning up. No, you're not, <laughs> right? But we know that to achieve peace or organization, there is division and chaos that has to happen, right? In the same way, when Christ comes, he does come to bring peace. But there is division that will happen. There will be division because, listen, and this is why. This is why I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt until Jesus returns, there will be division. Because at any given time, there will be those who are at peace with God through Jesus Christ and those who are at war with God with their sin. There exist two kingdoms that are simultaneously and by nature incompatible. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, and it is incompatible, and therefore there will always be division. We see it in the marketplace. We see it in the social order, and we even see it in the same household, which is where Jesus turns now as he clarifies where this division will take place. So Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace on the earth, but I came to bring a sword. Divide, so where will that division happen? In what way will this division manifest itself? Jesus says, I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. A person's opposition will come from within his own house. And there's a word play here that we miss in English. The word set means to cut in two, to, to divide. So Jesus says, I came to bring a sword to cut. Or divide a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, right? What Jesus is doing here though is Jesus is quoting Micah 7.6. Micah 7.6 says, For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. So Jesus is saying, like, this is this is what is true. And the question I have for you this morning is: Do you understand? that coming to Jesus, experiencing salvation, moving from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, immediately puts you at odds with those still in the kingdom of darkness. To be a friend of God is to be an enemy of the world and those in the world. Period. So when we come into the kingdom of light and we experience peace with God through Jesus Christ, we also inherit a war, a battle with the world that is god and anti-christ the world is increasingly hostile to the christian worldview like in other countries this is way more easily seen and understood to come to christ is to be shunned driven from your home and possibly even put to death by your own family this is a reality for many bible believing christians across the world here in america there's little chance you'll be put to death for your faith but do not for a minute think that you will not experience this division if you are a Christian. The world is increasingly hostile to the Christian worldview. It has been and always will be incompatible with the world system. The closer and more faithfully you follow Jesus, the more your life is going to provoke and incise the world, and the more you will see the reality of Jesus' words to his disciples, I have came to divide even among family. This is what Jesus says. He says the result of him coming will be division. And if you have not or are not experiencing this, you are either not following Jesus very boldly or you have withdrawn from the world. Because Jesus clarifies that even the most closely held bonds of human affection, parents and children, are not stronger than the division caused by following him. Let me say that again. The most closely held bonds of human affection are not stronger than the division caused by following Jesus. This is the reality Jesus wants his followers to know as they go out to represent him, as they go out to proclaim the kingdom of God. This is what he wants us to know, and this is why he first corrects and then clarifies. In the same way, many Christians believe today that if they trust in Christ, all their troubles will disappear, right? Their life will be peaceful and full of blessings. Some pastors even go as far as to promise prosperity and a life of ease to those who will come to Jesus. No wonder so many people are discouraged in the church. No wonder our young people are walking away from the faith by high school or college. No wonder... We are seeing a rise in people who identify with no religion at all. What do you expect when people who have been sold a bill of goods that is completely opposite of what Jesus said we should expect? Jesus says expect division, expect hatred, expect war, and we promise people peace and prosperity. So when war comes, they're not ready. It's not what they signed up for. So let me ask you a question. If you come to Jesus, will you experience peace with God? Yes, absolutely. With the world? No. You will not experience peace with the world. To be a friend with the world is to be an enemy with God. And therefore, to be a friend of God is to be an enemy of the world. You may even lose some of your closest relationships because your beliefs and worldview are radically different than those closest to you. And as much as you try and make peace, it may not be possible. Know that Jesus did not lie to his disciples. He says, listen, I came and the result of that is there's going to be division even among the closest of relationships. So why not avoid it altogether? I mean, can I just follow Christ quietly? Can I adopt a worldview of live and let live? Like what if people just don't know that I'm a Christian and then we won't have to divide over it? Interestingly enough, it is though Jesus anticipates this type of questioning and answers it even before the disciples ask it. So after he corrects and clarifies, he moves to cautioning and counseling. We find that in verses 37 through 39. These are some of the hard words, hard sayings of Jesus that we find here. Cautioning and counseling, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me, Is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Three times Jesus says the words, is not worthy of me. These are powerful words. These are frightening words. These are depart from me, I never knew you kind of words, right? Jesus says that there is, these are not worthy of him. There's a warning here for any of those who claim to follow Jesus. Indeed, listen, Jesus not only used his words instructing his disciples, there was another time when Luke says great crowds were following him, and he turned around, and this is what he said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So this is not just a warning for the 12. Jesus told a whole crowd of people, if you want to follow me, you cannot love your mother, your father, your spouse, your children, even your own life more than you love me. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, the context of the first two are easy to see. Like Jesus had just finished saying that he came to bring division even among the closest of families. And so what happens when by following Jesus, you come into direct conflict with your family? When following Jesus and his call in your life puts you at odds with your parents, what do you do? When following Jesus and his lordship of your life puts you at odds with your children's choices in their lives, what do you do? I know someone who chose to walk away from the faith and has forbidden her own parents from even naming the name of Christ to her child, their only grandchild. How do you faithfully follow Jesus and not openly declare him to those closest to you? Do you follow Jesus knowing that your relationship may be destroyed? Or do you put that relationship with your child and your grandchild ahead of your relationship with Jesus? What do you do, parents, when your child wants to participate in something that regularly takes them out of gathering with the church body? Do you disobey the scripture to not forsake the gathering of yourselves together to make them happy? Or do you risk upsetting the family dynamics to be faithful to Christ? These are situations we find ourselves in every single day. Matter of fact, we studied about them in Bible study this morning. The choice to remain faithful or to bow to pressure of the world, to family, to influences, even to our own desires. Here's what Jesus warns. Whoever loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of the word love here is phileo, which carries the idea of being friends with or friendly. The idea is when you combine it with the words more than, Jesus says, if you are more concerned with the relationship between your parents or your child than your relationship with me, you are unworthy of bearing my name as a follower. That is powerful. And let's stop for a minute and take a breath, right? Because it's heavy. Jesus says, if you place a relationship ahead of me, you're not worthy of if you would rather please your child than me, you're not worthy of me. If you rather please your parents than me, you're not worthy of me. This is a heavy, heavy topic. And the reason I say we need to stop here and breathe is because we are honest. We have, have all have moments where we have had lapses, moments where we chose something other than Or someone over Jesus. Moments when we didn't speak, when we should, when we go along to get along. Moments where we fail to follow Jesus in the way we should because we have chosen lesser things. Does that mean we are unworthy of being a Christian? What does that mean for me, for my salvation? First, let me assure you from Scripture that making mistakes does not disqualify you from following Jesus. Okay? So breathe. Peter. Peter, the one that said he would die with Jesus, denied him three times. Why? Fear of man, wanted comfort, didn't want to be persecuted, right? He denied him three times, and yet he would go on to serve Jesus and to follow Jesus. Timothy, Paul's protege the one that Paul felt confident enough to leave and oversee this church plan in Ephesus and help appoint elders there to care for the church, Paul had to encourage him to stop being ashamed of Paul's imprisonment, to stand firm and be faithful, implying that at least Timothy had been wavering. Otherwise, there's no need for the instruction. And to pick on Peter again, because it's easy. There was a time when Peter loved his religion and his Jewish friends more than he loved following Christ and his freedom. And so he withdrew from the Gentiles and went to the Jews. And Paul had to rebuke him in front of the whole church because Peter failed when chosen a relationship with God and the freedom he has in Christ and a relationship with the religious leaders. Peter faltered. Faltered. If these giants of faith can falter, then friend, be encouraged that we can't. And we will. But second, let me ask you this. When you do make mistakes, when you do not speak up for Jesus, when you don't follow him, when you choose things over him, what is your heart? Because Peter wept bitterly after denying Jesus. It broke his heart that he allowed his flesh to override his faith. A lifetime of obedience marked by occasional acts of disobedience is a lot different than a lifetime of doing what you want and what makes you happy marked by occasional acts of obedience to Christ. If you follow Christ for any amount of time, you are sure to mess up. I know I do. But if my heart is broken... If I want to please the Lord, if my first instinct is to choose him and then I make mistakes, that's one thing. But if I don't ever want to put him first, if my first instinct is to please my family or my spouse or my children, then listen, something's wrong. Something's broken. Because Jesus says we are to love him most. Jesus unapologetically and unreservedly demands your highest allegiance, your highest loyalty, and your highest love, which for anyone else would be entirely inappropriate. A politician that demands your highest allegiance is a dictator. A religious leader that demands your highest affections is a cult leader. A family member that demands your highest loyalty above all else is his best An egotistical narcissist and at worst abusive. But when Jesus says it, it is right and good and true because he is God. And as God, he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And if he says you're his, you are his. Not only is he the creator and sustainer, he deserves our highest allegiance, our highest loyalty, and our highest love. But furthermore we are he is not only in creation but in recreation bought by his precious blood. The Bible says you are not your own, you have been purchased, right? So not only do I owe him allegiance as my creator, it is as my recreator who brought me to life. Listen. If you cannot or will not accept that, then it is not too much of a stretch to see why Jesus says you are not worthy of him. Jesus says that he deserves our highest loyalty, our highest love. If you consistently place other relationships over Jesus, then you need to seriously ask yourself if he is your Lord and Savior or if you have made an empty profession. Jesus didn't pull any punches, right? He said, whoever loves father or mother or son more than me is not worthy of me. What this is not is is an excuse not to love your children your parents your neighbor your spouse like we are commanded to love and to love well to obey our parents to sacrificially love our spouses and to love and nurture our children but in comparison to our love for jesus and our seeking his will and good for our lives every other relationship no matter how deeply our love must pale in comparison if following jesus puts you at odds with your parents you have to follow jesus if following Jesus puts you at odds with your children, you have to follow Jesus. Not only do you have to, you want to, because he's your Lord and Savior. But listen, I wish we could stop there, but Jesus doesn't stop with our relationships. He goes further to our very life. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of We may be willing to say, I would choose Jesus over my kids. I would choose Jesus over my spouse. But would you choose Jesus over your very life? Because take up your cross refers to being executed. Like at this point in the disciples' life, the only meaning for take up the cross was to be executed by a Roman squad on a cross. To take up the cross was the moment after the trial and the beatings when the victim actually shouldered the instrument of his execution, the beam, and then he would go through a howling, bloodthirsty mob, and at that point, he was a dead man. He had no legal rights. He was a non-person anyone could do as he pleased to him. He could be struck and spit on and abused, and he had no rights. He walked through the crowd to his own execution. Only the worst and most powerless criminals bore a cross to die in prolonged agony. So don't miss the weight when Jesus says, whoever will not march to his death is not worthy of me. We, of course, know that within three years of saying this, Jesus took up his own cross and went to Calvary. So to take up your cross and follow him took on a whole new meaning. Can you imagine that? Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And they think, "Okay, that's I can do that. Right. Because we're just following and you're going from place to place and preaching and proclaiming and healing and yeah the Pharisees don't like you but everybody else kind of loves you so I can do this right Uh, would you mind if I sat on your right or left hand or right when you come into your kingdom can I rule with you and then he says no uh, this is the cross that I meant as he's nailed to a Roman cross right all of a sudden take up your cross and follow me took on new meaning when I say take up your cross and follow me I meant all the way to the finish line Listen, to take up the cross is by necessity to lay everything else down. It is to willingly embrace being put to death. It is to choose to follow Jesus in his self-emptying, humble, obedient march to Calvary. It is to love God more than anything else and be willing to lose everything else, even your own life, if necessary. which to our American comforted sensibilities seems completely absurd, right? I mean, doesn't God want me to be happy and prosperous and to bless what I put my hands to, right? Doesn't God have a wonderful plan for me? Doesn't he want me to be successful? Surely God wants for me what I want for myself. And yet we are left with the statement of Jesus. that says, if you're not willing to follow me all the way, you're not worthy of me. Which is why we do a disservice to someone when we tell them God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life if they come to him. Would we dare say that to a Muslim girl who coming to faith might mean her very death by the hands of her father? Would you tell her God had a wonderful plan for her life? What about for the Hindu boy that converting will ostracize him socially and economically and he will be ruined? Will you tell them that God has a wonderful plan for his life? Then why do we still feel so comfortable in America telling people that God has a wonderful plan for their life when we don't know what persecution they are going to face, we don't know what their God's plan is. God's plan for their life may be to pour out their life in seemingly fruitless and thankless labor only to face persecution and martyrdom. What if God's life for their plan for their life doesn't involve comfort at all but hardships and difficulties? Do we wonder Why, when things go bad, people walk away from the faith. When a follower of Christ is faithful and they still lose their loved ones. When a follower of Christ is faithful and they still face crippling disease. When a follower of Christ is faithful and they still experience financial hardships. We think it's strange. Jesus said, to follow him is to take up his cross and follow Jesus' call is to follow him as a call to take up a cross, to die to self daily and to follow him. This is the warning he gives those that would follow him. Count the cost. After another similar area of teaching, he says, what would you do if you were going to build a building? You would sit down and you would count the cost to see if you could finish it. Or what general would go to war? What king would go to war without first seeing if he could meet the enemy? And if he couldn't, he would try to make peace. He says, therefore, count the cost to following Jesus, and the cost is everything. But in the midst of this crushing burden, Jesus lightens it in two ways. One, he says, follow me. He doesn't call us to go to a place he has not already been. Amen. We have a Savior who is willing to humble himself and enter into his created world as a helpless babe to endure all the hardships of living and then to willingly and boldly march to rejection and violent death at at the very hands of the ones he came to save. He doesn't say, you do this. He says, follow me. I'm already going that way. We have a Savior who lovingly marched in front of us and then calls us to follow him and to listen he tells us this is the way to true and everlasting life his counsel for all men and women that would follow him is this if you lose your life this way you will find it so he says in verse 39 right whoever finds his life will lose it whoever loses his life for my sake will find it The idea here is if you choose something over Jesus and you find your life apart from him, no matter how long you live it, no matter how big you build it, no matter how many awards or trophies or bonuses you get, you will lose it. So if you find it, If you find life in success, if you find life in love, if you find life in money, in prosperity, in winning, whatever it is. Listen, you can find life in it for a little bit, but you are going to lose it. The word life here is the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 28 when he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Same word life. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Life here then is contrasted with the body. It is the center of who you are. It is your mind, it is your soul, it's your spirit, it's your identity. It's who you are at the core of your being. If you have anything other than Christ at the center, you will ultimately lose it. Anything else, family, success, money, religion, if it's not Jesus at the core of who you are, you will lose it because he is the king of kings and lord of lords, and there is no one else that sits on the throne. That's it. And listen, here's the question. What earthly life could possibly be worth losing eternity? What could you possibly experience this side of heaven that would be worth losing eternity? Successful business? I wouldn't trade it, right? All the money in the world, I wouldn't trade it. Days full of joy and and happiness and, and never having any kind of sickness or illness. I wouldn't trade it because all of this life is but a wisp or a vapor in light of eternity. And I would not trade it for anything. Jesus says in Mark, what would it profit you? What advantage if you gain the whole world? You win every tournament. You get every promotion. You have the nicest house and the fastest car, the biggest bank account and the most prestigious awards. And in the end, you lose your soul. This is not a rhetorical question, but an actual one that Jesus counsels us to consider. Yes, you may avoid suffering by loving others more than Jesus. Yes, you may avoid persecution and estrangement from your family if you love them more than Jesus. But in the end, you will lose something far more valuable. But if you're willing to lose everything else, you will gain everlasting life. This is his counsel to his disciples. He says, if you are willing to lose everything for my sake, then you will find true and abiding life. Not only is this his counsel to disciples, but it is his counsel to us today. Everyone who hears this is the counsel that Jesus tells you is, there is nothing in this world worth losing your soul. And the only way To have everlasting life is to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask you a few questions and then we're going to close. Robin's going to come, lead us in a song. Do you think that coming to Jesus will make your life better and you will not have any difficulties? Then I pray that Jesus' correction will turn your heart this morning. Do you think that you will be able to follow Jesus and keep all your relationships intact? Then may Jesus' clarification help you see that by following him, you are an enemy of the world. Do you think you can love Jesus a little bit and everything will be okay? Then maybe Jesus' caution caused you to think again this morning. Do you think you can follow Jesus and still live your life the way you want to? Then may Jesus' counsel remind you of the cost of living for yourself rather than for Jesus. For some of you this morning, your heart is broken with the way you've been following Jesus. But look up here. Be encouraged. Because a broken heart is a sign of a gracious God. The remorse and the conviction is God speaking to you and giving you an opportunity to repent. It's grace that your heart is broken. After Peter wept Bitterly, God restored him. Amen? Your broken heart is God's gracious intervention in your life telling you something is wrong. You can repent. You can be like Peter and be restored and live out your days in obedient love to our Savior. And then for some of you this morning, you realize you did not know what you were signing up for when you accepted Jesus as your Savior. No one told you. I want to be just about as blunt as I ever am up here. If you are not willing to make Jesus the Lord of your life, then you should not claim he is the savior of your life. Because Jesus says you have to love him above everything else, right? To come to him is to surrender to him, to make him Lord of your life, not just your savior. He is our Lord and savior. So maybe you didn't know what you're signing up for, but you heard it this morning that Jesus calls you to follow him no matter the cost. If that's you, if you feel that way, then know this morning you can surrender to that and follow him right where you are. Jesus will have all of you or none of you. For all of us. May the weight of this message, may the weight of Jesus' warning stay with us this week, but we are going to stand and we're going to sing a song and we're going to sing one more time, worthy you are worthy. And here's my prayer. If you know that he is worth everything in this life, then sing it with renewed vigor because he is worthy. And if you don't know that, I pray that God would use scripture and this song to penetrate and break your heart for him. Let's pray.